Okay. There is Life Points Board. I would give it up for them. I thought they'd be parallel with me, and that's why I was kind of looking. Where are they at? They've missed it, okay? This morning, we're going to be introducing our new pastor. And it's been a process, really, for about three years. And publicly, we opened it up January 12th. I will not forget that. And I'm going to let Kate, I want to first of all thank you, but I want to thank the board. Give it up for the board one more time. Because it has been a journey. But Kate, why don't you explain to us what's been going on? Hey, good morning, LifePoint. Morning to those of you watching online. Sure, it's been a journey. It's a big transition day, and we just wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how we got to this point to bring us all in the loop, bring us all up to speed. You know, it was five years ago, back in 2016, that George came to the board and said he wanted to start a dialogue around his retirement and what that might look like. And he wasn't ready yet, but we've all talked about the Great Commission and reaching future generations. And George and Cheryl care so much about this church that they knew this wasn't gonna happen by accident. We had to be intentional, we had to start planning. And so we started talking about what we refer to as successing George successfully. In 2017, we did a book review together. It was on a book called Next, all about senior pastor transitions. And we looked at what might work for LifePoint and what we didn't think would work. And we studied churches who had done this and what worked and where they had challenges. So in 2018, we then started to, as I say, kick the tires on a firm called Vanderblum and headquartered in Houston. And they do placements of senior pastors nationally. And uh, we weren't ready yet, but we were planning and getting information. And then in 2019, George told us he was ready. So all along, this has been George's decision on George's timing. And uh, we all took a deep breath and we said, it's time. And we rolled up our sleeves. We formally engaged Vander Blumen. And then as George said, and I think many of you will remember, January 12th, we were here when George publicly announced his plans to retire and introduced the board as the search team. So that was a big day, wasn't it? It was emotional and <laughs> kind of a shock and odd day. And then we got started, but immediately what happened in March, COVID hit. And so we did some head scratching and thought, well, it's just gonna take longer. It's gonna look a little different. So what did it look like? Well, uh, we're a very collaborative board. We met, can you believe it, over 30 times last year. And some of that was virtual, obviously. And we looked at lots of resumes and watched lots of messages, um, studied lots of disc tests, and most importantly, we got to know many senior pastors across the country who were very interested. And uh, in August, we had two final candidates. And in a very telling meeting over in the connection room, we also realized that maybe we weren't finished. Uh, long story short, that week we realized that these candidates weren't um, the right timing or the right fit. And to the credit of the folks behind me, um, they take their responsibility on the board very seriously. Uh, they are committed. And what I often would hear from them is that this is our church family. And while we're not perfect and we don't have it all figured out, we're not going to put someone before us that we're not comfortable with. So it was a little frustrating. We started all over again. 
And uh, I'm getting to the good part now. In October, <laughs> October we had an introductory meeting with some guy from Los Gatos, California, right? <laughs> and uh, boy, was that, um, we all just liked Pastor Mark right away. And we continued our process and then I have to say, we were so grateful to so many pastors we met from across the country who uh, were interested and gave us their time and uh, wanted to see this process through with us. But it was clear Mark was our guy if he would have us. And in early December, we made a call. We were so thrilled when without hesitation, he said yes. And here we are today. So what happens now? Does the board just go away? Well, no, of course not. We're not finished, but we're not meant to be up on the stage. I mean, I'm an accountant after all. We're gonna go back in the background where we belong, doing the business of the church, financial and uh, policy decision-making. We'll be alongside Mark, just like all of us. We'll be getting to know him and his family and doing life with them. We will continue to um, be alongside him and offer however or little advice he might like. And together we'll make sure LifePoint stays within what I call the guardrails and um, keep the church accountable to its mission, right? To join and serve people, uh, to join people seeking purpose and offer them life through Jesus Christ. So um, to wrap up on behalf of all the board, I wanna thank you for your encouragement and your prayers this last year. And if I could ask you just to continue to pray, because we're obviously in a big transition for the Riggins family and for the church staff and for Cheryl and her new season with this little guy here. Thank you very much. Back to you, Let's give it up for Kate and Board, okay? Thank you guys very, very much. I want to thank my wife, Cheryl. Stand up. Just show, take off your mask for a moment, okay? That's my wife right there, okay? Very good, very good. You guys can go sit down. Okay. Well, like Kate said, we've, we as a board did a lot of work. And I can tell you from the core of my being, as I looked at all the different candidates that were interviewing for this job, I said, this is the guy right there. And I don't bring my wife in on these things, but she got a wind of some of those just listening. And on her own, she says, that's the guy right there. And I said, you're right. And so I want to introduce to us today, for the very first time, to LifePoint's family. Because we are a family here, okay? I want us to join the Riggins family by introducing Pastor Mark Riggins. Pastor Mark, there you are. Thank you. Okay, give it up for Mark. Thank you. He's my pastor now. I'm excited. Thank you. Let's take the hill, Mark. I'll be behind you. Thank you. Okay, at this church, you've heard me say this, we live for the audience of one. And we really value people being who God created them to be. Cheryl and I, this week, we've been out doing a little shopping, getting gifts for the Riggins family, and I thought, okay, I gotta get Mark a gift. Should I get him a Hawaiian shirt? <laughs> or should I get something that he would really feel comfortable in because we want him to be who God has made him to be. And so, Mark, I'm going to give you a polo, 
plaid <laughs> shirt, okay? That's, That's for awesome. you. Thank you. You be who God has made you to be. You lead us. Thank you, brother. Be comfortable in your skin, and we will Thank follow you. you fully, okay, you. with the Lord. Have a good one. Mark, give us God's Appreciate word. You. Appreciate you. Okay? I love you. Thank you for this. I will lay this over here. And we will get going. First, before I even get started, I just want to introduce, thank you, first of all, for your kind and warm welcome. It's undeserved, but much appreciated. I want to introduce, just real quickly, my wife, Ginger, and then I have four kids, Reagan, Kennedy, Lincoln, and Madison. And I will just tell you that after the service, we are going to be up here. We would love the opportunity to just meet you uh, in a socially distanced way. If you feel comfortable doing that, we would love that opportunity to get to know you. And as we learn your names and learn your faces, that's going to be fun for us. But I gotta tell you, I can't speak this morning without first doing what I have to do, what I feel compelled to do, and that is to say, this church exists because so many of you, I know when I walk into a place like this that a lot of people have given a lot of time and sacrificed a whole lot to make this place happen. Yesterday I got to meet a whole bunch of volunteers, many of them told me about being baptized, told me about the life change they've experienced and the Bible studies and groups they've been in. And I am reminded that a lot of people have committed a lot of years to make this place happen. And I step into a legacy. But I can't go any further without recognizing one person in particular, and that is Pastor George and, of course, his amazing wife, Cheryl. 32 years ago in 1989, when they took a step of faith to come here and say, I think maybe God may call us to do something significant. And now we all stand here today and we recognize the significant thing that God has done through the years. Because though it had to have been difficult in those early days, they stayed at it. And 32 years of unheard of faithfulness. And we get to be here today. We've just got to stop and recognize what they have done over the course of these last 32 years and give God the glory and thank them for their service to him. Would you help me just recognize them today? Now, there's a future day coming where we'll get to do that real good for a good long time as is deserved. Now, I want to take a poll to get us started today because I want to learn a little bit more about you. And I'm going to do that by asking you to share something very personal. And I may even divide us all right out of the gate, but that's okay. We're going to have fun doing it. First of all, let me ask you, those of you who know a little bit about automobiles, about cars, if you go to lift the hood, you would consider yourself to be mechanically inclined. How many of you would just raise your hand and say, that's you? I'm kind of mechanically inclined. Wow. Now, who's laughing? Why are we laughing at these people? These are good people. We need these people, right? Yeah, there we go. Okay, very good. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you are intimidated by those people? We're friends. Okay. Now, let me ask you a real vulnerable question. We're in church, so this is a safe place. How many of you, based on what you know right now, you couldn't change the oil in your car if your life depended on it? Would you just raise your hand? Wow, there's a lot of us. Okay, I am amongst friends. Now let me tell you, I have my father-in-law who is in heaven now, was always very mechanically inclined. And honestly, I, that always intimidated me a little bit. And it really came back to bite me because I never learned what I maybe should have learned when my wife Ginger and I were married in 1996, we were married in San Angelo, 
We came for our uh, wedding night in, in Arlington. And the next day, it was a Sunday, we were going to head out for a nice two-week honeymoon. We were planning on going a week in Gatlinburg and then the Smoky Mountains. And then we were going to go down into uh, uh, the, the Disney World and we were going to spend a week there. But we didn't get any further day one of this two-week honeymoon past Canton, Texas. Anybody know where Canton is? Well, no, that's way too much enthusiasm for Canton. Way too much. Has anybody ever spent part of their honeymoon in Canton? Did you seriously just raise your hand? You've spent part of your honeymoon in Canton? That's amazing, because we have. We didn't get any further than Canton. We were on I-20 when all of a sudden, the steering column began to smoke. Now, I'm not mechanically inclined, but I knew that was bad. But it wasn't as bad as the next few words that came out of my wife's mouth when she said, well, I better call my dad. Men, right? I'm like, oh, no. I have no clue what to do, but we need to be ignorant together. Well, in Canton, Texas, on Sunday, nothing's open. And so the next day, Monday morning, we go and we go down to the Chevrolet dealer, and they're able to tell that we're on our honeymoon. They get us in right away, and they fix it at no charge, and they send us on the way. Yeah, that was very cool. Unfortunately, I still didn't learn anything about being more mechanically inclined, and it came back to bite me again when 15 years later, this time instead of heading east, by the way, which way is east from here? Would you just point? We're pointing different directions. Look, most of you are pointing this way. Let's just, yeah, let's just kind of Wikipedia this thing, group think. All right, so we were headed west this time. We were headed to California. We were, instead of just my wife and I, it was my wife and four children, and we were heading in a big moving truck, and we didn't get any further than Phoenix, Arizona, when all of a sudden, smoke starts coming out of the engine like crazy, and I'm not mechanically inclined, but I knew that was bad. But it wasn't as bad as what was about to come out of my kids' mouths when they said, we better call Paw Paw. I'm like, what about me? I knew what to do by then. I pulled off into the parking lot, and right away I popped the hood, and that was all I knew to do. I was done. Called the mechanic, and while we're waiting there, by the way, in Phoenix, Arizona, it's in fall. It's September 30 of 2011. It's 118 degrees in Phoenix. I'm pretty sure that's God's way of saying, don't live here, right? And so while we were waiting on the mechanic, my son Lincoln, who was six years old at the time, jumped up onto the wheel and just kind of looked over the engine thinking maybe he could do something his dad couldn't. And I took this picture, I wanted you to see it. So so as we're waiting on the mechanic, this is Lincoln kind of looking over our broken down engine. And I can't help but think that picture summarizes how life goes and how we often feel. When we get to the place where life doesn't turn out like we thought. And here's the question. What do you do when life doesn't turn out the way you thought it would? And maybe you're even there right now. Maybe you're in the place where your career is not going the way you thought it would. Maybe your marriage isn't quite where you thought it it should be. Maybe it's the fact that you don't have a marriage or you've lost a marriage. Maybe you're in that place with finances or maybe you're in that place with a relationship with someone with your children or the children you thought you would have or the grandchildren and you're in that place where you're wondering life hasn't turned out quite like I thought it would what do I do when I find myself over an engine 
that's broken on a 118 degree day. And I think this picture captures it pretty well. The truth is, there is a similar hopelessness that's happening amongst churches. The, the American church in particular. Because over and over again, what we are seeing is the church decline. And now that COVID has hit, the church has not only declined more, but a lot of people have suddenly disappeared. And I want you to see this graph from the Barna Group, where we see in the 90s, there was sort of a consistent of a church attendance. This isn't people who claim to attend church, but who are actually showing up at church. Because as you know, there's a pretty big difference. But this is in the mid-40s in the 90s, and then you can see the number continuing to kind of rock along, up and down. But then in the last few years, you can see the severe decline of church attendance in the American church. And I'll just tell you that as COVID has hit, and a lot of people are unable or don't feel safe being in a church, that we're so blessed to have online opportunities. And those of you who are watching online, we are so grateful that you are part of us and here today. But a lot of people have just completely disappeared. And many who are church experts are predicting that what has happened is the eventual decline that was going to take place over the next decade has just been accelerated in 2020 because of COVID. Those who were on the fringe and were going to leave eventually left. And many are beginning to predict the demise and death of the church. What do you do when the church doesn't turn out the way you thought? And many in America are beginning to ask that question because of the results that we've been seeing in the last few years. And I want to tell you why I have never been more optimistic about the church and why we can find hope regardless of what our circumstances are. And so if you find yourself in any hopeless position, if you find yourself over an engine on a 118 degree day, I want us to look at the scripture today. If you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, the first gospel in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 13. And we're going to look at a famous conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And we're going to see an incredible declaration by one of the disciples. And then we're going to see one of the most bold predictions that Jesus ever made. Matthew chapter 16, I hope you'll look at this with me as we look at it together. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, we have to wonder why is that area listed in scripture? Caesarea Philippi is a very unique place. And the conversation that takes place makes no sense for it to be here. It doesn't make any sense for Jesus to have this conversation in this place. I want you to see this map because Caesarea Philippi is about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. It's north of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did much of his ministry. It seems out of nowhere, out of place for the conversation that is about to happen that we're about to read. But see, in this area, in this northern area, it was considered pagan. There was a lot of Roman mythology. They were, they were worshiping the Greek Greek gods, they were worshiping uh, even a temple built for Caesar. There, there was a lot of wickedness. This was a, a very pagan place. And when they went there, the disciples, they knew this was not a Jewish, this was not a religious place, very Gentile place. And they must be thinking, okay, is this a mission trip? Like, what's going on, Jesus? Why are we here? 
And I want you to know that Jesus loves to show up in hopeless places and to bring new life. It's what he's always done. And I want you to see this conversation, but I wanted you to know where it was and why that was important. Look at the rest of that verse, verse 13 it says. And he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And if you write in your Bible like I do, you might even underline Son of Man. That's an important title. It's a title that Jesus gives himself and refers to more than 80 times in the four Gospels. And if you write in your Bibles, you might even write down beside that Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. Because it's back in Daniel where the prophet says, someday the Son of Man will come who will be sovereign and will forgive sins. And Jesus is saying, I am that fulfillment of prophecy. I am the Son of Man. And so Jesus says, who do people say that I am? By the way, this is a question we should never ask anyone else. We don't want to go to work tomorrow and say, hey, what are people saying about me? Because you know what they'll say? Nothing, right? I used to always hear that in your 20s, you're so focused on what everybody is thinking about you. In your 30s, you become exhausted with what everybody is thinking about you. And in your 40s, it dawns on you, nobody's thinking about you, right? (laughs) Jesus, though, has a reason he's asking this question. He says, who do you think or who do people say the Son of Man is? And watch the disciples' response to this great question. Look at verse 14, it says, They replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, which was odd because John the Baptist was alive during Jesus' time, but they're kind of doing a reincarnation, John the Baptist-like. Others say you're Elijah, others, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, what they're saying is, Jesus, people respect you. They think you're like one of the legends of the faith. They think you are an important figure, maybe even important in all of history. You're a legendary figure, Jesus. But Jesus had already said, who do people say the Son of Man is? Meaning, you cannot remove Jesus' deity. And in response, people are saying, well, they respect you. They're just not necessarily doing the deity thing. And so Jesus goes, okay, well, then let me make it really personal. And watch what he says in verse 15. He begins to look at them and ask them something specifically. He said, what about you? He asked, Why, who do you say? that I am. And this is the preeminent question of our lifetime. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he like one of the prophets? Is he a religious leader? Or is he who he claimed to be God the Son? Deity, divine, Savior, and Lord. Because that's a completely different thing. And the reality is it doesn't matter what my parents think, what my spouse thinks, what my children think. I will stand before God someday. And this is the question. This is the preeminent question that we have to answer individually. Who do you say Jesus is? And watch the response. And here comes the declaration. I think the disciples must have looked at each other and thought... Jesus, now why are we at Caesarea Philippi? It seems like such a dark and and, and hopeless place. Why are we here? And Jesus is asking them a question. Like, Jesus, why are you asking this question? And then he asks them personally, what do you think? And they begin to look at each other, maybe stumble over their answers. And then impulsive Peter steps up and he answers the question. And this is often called Peter's confession. 
I want you to see it again in verse 16. Peter steps forward, Simon Peter, and he answers and says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is a profound thing Peter has just said. And you may wonder, why is it so profound? Because other people earlier in Scripture had had conversations and had said that Jesus was God. Why is this one so profound? But in every other case, people were responding to a miracle that Jesus had just done. And they were emotionally saying, wow, you are God. But here in this moment, Jesus asks someone else about his own identity. And in a non-emotional way, Peter looks at him and he declares, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms what he just said and reveals how foundational it is. This is a moment where you almost can, in, can in hindsight, look back and imagine the disciples must have felt change in the air as Peter declared that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And in response to what Peter just said, watch what Jesus says. Beginning in verse 17, Jesus replied, He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. No, no, where did this come from? But by my Father in heaven. And then he goes on to make a bold prediction. And he says, and I tell you, That you are Peter. I'm changing your identity from Simon to Peter. Just like when we follow Jesus, he changes our identity. We then become sons and daughters of God. And then he goes on to make the prediction. And he said, on this rock, on this truth, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. And for the first time, that word ecclesia is used in the New Testament. It would be used 114 more times. It's revealing that the church is not a place. The church is a people. And he's looking at them. He says, I will build my church. And then he really predicts that there's going to be opposition to the church. And he says, and the, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Or in some of your translations, it says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, in this conversation, we read that and maybe we feel a little something. But not back then. When they heard that for the very first time, they all kind of looked at each other. And I imagine they they sort of were cutting eyes at each other. And they're looking around and they're wondering. And they begin to whisper. And finally, someone says, well, uh, Jesus, um, this church thing doesn't sound like a very big deal. Because right now, there's one, two, three, four. Like, your whole church can fit in a 15-passenger van. Right? (laughs) And you're talking about like this big thing that the spiritual world will oppose and you're going to, you're going to prevail and, and, and you're going to build and like, it sounds so global, but one, two, three, four, we're in Caesarea Philippi. Like, like nobody even knows we're here and nobody cares that we're here. How big a deal is this really going to be? And Jesus continues talking in verse 19. He gets to verse 20. And I can't help but think the disciples, if they're anything like us here in America, at some point they would have looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus, you know what? We love you. And we think you have the right heart. But you need a strategy. You need a plan. So we're going to put up a little business plan for you. We're going to help you out a little bit. And I think we can help make this thing at least 
be something. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to overhaul your image a little bit, right? So, so what we're going to do is we're going to form a TikTok account. We're going to put a Snapchat. We're going to have an Instagram story. We're going to have you dress a little bit differently. We're going to have you talk a little bit differently. Kind of soften things up a little bit. I think we can at least get this thing off the ground. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is what I love about verse 20. He says, no, you misunderstood me. I didn't say we will build my church. I said, I will build my church. Well, what do we do, Jesus? Just follow me. Just follow me. And I love this because wherever you find yourself today, whatever hurt, whatever discouragement, whatever hopelessness is in your life, this is the moment when we find ourselves in that place where Jesus says, start following me a little closer. Don't try to fix it. Don't, don't try. Begin by following me. And then Jesus says, I will build my church. It's always been about him. It'll always be about him. It's one of the great quotes from PG just a couple of weeks ago when he said, Life Point was never about Pastor George. Life Point will never be about Pastor Mark. Life Point has always been and will always be about God. Amen? Because this is where we see it's, yeah, amen. This is his church. He is building his church. And so the disciples are like, so we just follow you? Yeah, so what do we do? Do we build a temple or what do we, no, 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 just follow me. Okay. They begin to follow him. And a few chapters go by and Jesus continues to say and predict that the difficult day is coming where he will lay down his life and three days later he will rise again. And by chapter 26 of Matthew, we actually see the story in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. And when he is arrested, the disciples had to begin to have doubt increase in their soul and to begin to be increasingly discouraged. And then when Jesus went to the cross and was crucified, doubt continued to increase even more and they were discouraged. And they found themselves in a hopeless place. And eventually Jesus was buried in that grave. And when he was buried, the hopelessness was surely overwhelming for the disciples. And you know why we know that? Because three days later when Jesus rose from the dead, you know how many disciples were there waiting on him? Zero. Because they saw nothing but a grave. They saw nothing but hopelessness, just like we would have. But God has a way of showing up in graves and bringing new life. I don't know if it's ever dawned on you, but every resurrection takes place near a grave. And in this place, it was hopeless. And God brought new life. It's the way it's always been. And I want to real quickly remind us all of God's track record. You see, it began in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when God and Adam and Eve had this beautiful and intimate relationship. But then, in Genesis chapter 3, we see sin enter the human bloodstream, and all of a sudden, that intimate relationship is broken. But God brought life to that hopeless place. When in Genesis 3.15, he said that he would provide a Messiah, a Messiah whose uh, heel would be st uh, struck by the, the serpent, but... 
the Messiah would crush his head. And all of humanity faced the cross, longing for the Messiah who would one day come. And then we fast forward the story to Genesis chapter 12, and we find Abraham in around 2000 B.C., And Abraham is approached by God to say, I want to form a nation through you, through whom the Messiah will eventually come. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah are excited, but they have no children. God says, I'm going to take care of that. Years go by, decades go by, and all of a sudden their very marriage becomes a hopeless place. But then... God shows new life in a miracle son named Isaac and all of a sudden they have their family. Eventually their family becomes so large they eventually become a nation. And the rest of the Old Testament is about the formation and the on and off again relationship between this nation and God. And then we fast forward the story 500 years and we're in around 1500 BC and we find ourselves in the book of Exodus and all of a sudden here we see that nation of Israel enslaved in Egypt. And now they once again find themselves in a hopeless place, discouraged. And God brought new life on the backside of a desert through a burning bush when he picked out Moses and said, I want you to go to the most powerful man on earth. And Moses, with laughable resources, goes before the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And God rescues them from Egypt. They go across the promised land, enter into uh, Israel. And there they begin the era of the judges. And then we fast forward the story 500 more years. And now we're around 1000 BC when in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we see this nation of Israel there on a, a gully. And they're sitting there completely overshadowed by this great army, the Philistines, these giant of people. And one in particular, Goliath, who is out taunting the, the, the nation of Israel, and they know their days are numbered and they find themselves in a hopeless place. But God brought life through a young shepherd boy named David who walked out in front and didn't know any better. And he just stepped out and said, wait a minute, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he stepped out and followed with courage. And God brought new life and the era of the kingdom and the nation of Israel was born. It was one of its most glorious seasons. And then we fast forward the story 500 more years and we go to the book of Esther. And there we find the children of Israel once again in captivity in Babylon, overtaken by Persia. And now they're kind of in no man's land. We want to go back, but we don't have protections and we don't have the resources. And they're finding themselves in this Persian captivity or this Persian situation and we have the King Xerxes but his number two man Haman actually says you know what I think we need to eliminate all the Israelites and all of a sudden they think their days are numbered once again and he says I'm going to begin with Mordecai the spiritual father of the nation so he builds the gallows and he gets permission from King Xerxes to eliminate the entire nation But then God gives new life in this hopeless moment and he pulls up a courageous and bold lady named Queen Esther who goes before the king and God reveals to him that she is telling the truth and reveals to him that it's Haman that's the problem and Haman dies on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai because God keeps his promises and they are once again rescued and all of humanity is still facing the cross, still waiting for this Messiah and nothing happens. We call that the period of silence, the dark years where there's no scripture, there's no word, we're waiting for the Messiah, we're waiting for the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15 and then they're in a no uh, prominent place just a regular town of Bethlehem just as had been prophesied all of time split 
as Jesus, God the Son, came down to earth, and it's as if heaven kissed earth, and Jesus, the Son of Man, God the Son, was born. Emmanuel, God with us, he came as our Savior to reveal the, the love of God and satisfy the justice of God. And he lived a perfect life, and he predicted he would build his church. And then he goes to a cross where he dies for my sins and yours. And then he's buried, and all of history holds its breath. Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. But day three, on day three, he rises from the dead and he conquers death and he makes a way for us to have what Adam and Eve had in that intimate relationship with God. Once again, we have a savior. We have an interceder on our behalf. We have a Lord who welcomes us into a relationship and says, come on, I want to have that kind of personal relationship with you all because Jesus rose from the dead and then the very first thing he wanted to do now I'm going to go build my church. Now I'm going to go build my church. And the disciples are like, all right, let's go. We're ready to do it. We've got that plan. We're going to kick it in place now. And he goes, nope, hang on. I want you to go up into the upper room. You're going to wait on the Holy Spirit, and I'll let you know when it's time to go. For now, you just wait on me. And that's exactly what they did. But they were so committed, and they became so fearless that they all, almost all of them became martyrs, and their very blood was the seed of this church that Jesus was committed to build. And over and over again, throughout history, we've seen this cycle where there's uh, growth in the church, and then there's opposition, and then there's perseverance. We see it for the first several hundred years. There would be growth in the church, and then there would be opposition, and then there would be perseverance. We get to the Middle Ages, there's growth, and there's opposition, and then there's, there's all kinds of perseverance on the backside of that. It could be governmental uh, opposition, it could be military opposition, it could be from within opposition, it could be times of, ho of, of hot, times of cold. But over and over again, we see the church move forward, all the way even to the Age of Enlightenment, when you had someone like Voltaire who spoke up and said, look, I believe in this God who might be uh, a an intelligent designer, but the God of Scripture is so irrational, it's so illogical, it's so improbable. I cannot believe the God of Scripture. And so he set out to write 2,000 pamphlets and books, and he said, I plan to single-handedly eliminate the church. And so as he wrote this, and he began having a growing confidence, he eventually made a prediction from his very home where he said, I believe within 50 years of my death, Scripture will no longer be revered, and with my Pen, I plan to single-handedly destroy the church that the apostles built. But he was wrong on two accounts. He died, not the church. And it wasn't the apostles who were building the church. It's Jesus who's building his church. And 50 years after his death, from the very home in which he made the prediction, the Geneva Bible Society was using that as its headquarter to print and distribute Bibles throughout all of Europe. You know why? Because Jesus keeps his promises, amen? And this is who Jesus is, and this is what he does. And we go, and we can look at country after country where missionaries might even be kicked out, and they would come back years later and realize a revival had taken place because God continues to build his church. And as we gather here in 2021, and as we're trying to recover from another uh, pandemic, which the history has recorded many times, we come to the place where we wonder what's next. And let me just tell you, today we gather at LifePoint Church and we join saints around the world who are gathering today. It's not millions strong, it's 
billion strong. The church of Jesus Christ can no longer fit in a 15-passenger van, right? It's now billions of people who are gathered right now today. They're gathering in yurts. They're gathering in huts. They're gathering in tents. They're gathering in open air. They're in underground churches. They're in homes, online church. They're in places wherever it takes in a home and an open field. They're in cathedrals. They're in auditoriums like this. And let me tell you, it's all nationalities, all languages, all skin colors, all ethnicities. The church of Jesus Christ is beautifully diverse. We also realize the church of Jesus Christ as it gathers today has all kinds of uh, denominational affiliations. We've got Baptist, we've got Presbyterian, we've got Assembly of God, Church of God, Church of Christ, Lutheran. If I didn't name the thing you grew up on, it's in there too. I mean, we've got Bible churches, non-denominated, it's all in there, right? We also have people of all kinds of theological persuasions. We have people who are, who are Calvinists, we have people who are Arminian, we have people who are Reformed, who are, who are non-Reformed, who are uninformed. Like we, they're all over the place, right? We've got people who have sign gifts this way, you see sign gifts. But at the end of the day, here's what we all know. We gather here at Life Point Church and we join all these saints and we declare this one single truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Amen? Amen. And there are a lot of things that we can do going forward that might be more admired, that might be more popular, that might be more profitable. But there is nothing we can ever do that is more eternally meaningful than joining Jesus in building his church. Because what does it mean to build his church? It means to declare this truth, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I want my neighbors to know that. I want the people I work with to know that. I want the people in my family to know that. Because this, joining Jesus and building his church, it is the greatest opportunity of our lifetime. It is the greatest investment we can ever make with our life to be part of this unstoppable church, this unstoppable church mission. So I want to tell you, I have never been more optimistic about the church because I know whose idea it is and I know who's building it. And because he keeps his promises, I can rest knowing he's got a great plan and I can't wait to follow him so closely that we don't miss it. And I want to invite you to continue to follow him so closely that we don't miss what he has planned. Now let me ask you something. I don't know where you are in your life, where you may find a lack of hope right now. But can I just encourage you that this same Jesus who keeps his promises, promises his presence with you in this season. He promises to give you purpose. He promises to give you an invitation to be part of the greatest organization in the world, his church. And with that, would you once again just say, you know what? Maybe I just need to follow him more closely. Like the disciples, I'm tempted to do these other things on my own, but I need to follow him more closely. I need to re-anchor my hope in this eternal Jesus. I want to invite you to do that again today. And I want to close with these three questions. As you think about your own life and where you are, is there anything in your life that you are trying to build on your own. Like the disciples, that's a temptation of all of us. I think in the Western uh, culture, what we find over and over again is that we tend to achieve for God instead of knowing God. We value achieving more than knowing. And yet Jesus said in John 15, 5, that, that, that I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. And then he gives a warning, but apart from me, you can do nothing.
abide before achieve? Are we abiding in him? And the second question. Are you focusing on the presence of sin more than the power of your Savior and your Savior's grace? You see, these disciples were in Caesarea Philippi, and it was so easy to look around and go, wait a minute, this world's broken, wait a minute. There's anything good happening in this world. And they could have missed that the Son of Man was with them, and the power of his grace and the power of his sovereignty was making a prediction that, change, that is changing the world right now. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it so easy with 24-7 news and with, with social media, it's easy to get overwhelmed by discouragement and hopeless conversations. But may we never lose sight of the power of our Savior and the power of his grace within us, whatever we've done, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, but also where there is sin, grace is greater. I mean, our sin's a big deal, but his grace is a bigger deal. And may we never lose sight of whatever is around us or within us, the presence of our Savior. And then finally, are you personally joining Jesus on his mission to build his church? I believe it is the opportunity of a lifetime. And this church exists because so many of you have said yes and now we invite more of you to say yes or to recommit because God is up to something and, and pandemics don't discourage him. He's been through a few and he always built on the other side. So I don't know what he has planned, but I know we can trust him. Let's pray. Father, was we come to you today in this just significant moment in the just in the story of Life Point Church, your church. We all want to refocus our eyes and our hearts on you. May you increase and we decrease. And whatever's going on in our life right now that may be discouraging God, may we find our hope in you again. May we recommit and re-engage to closely follow you. And may we find hope in your church again. It's your idea. You're building it. And may we not miss out on this opportunity. Father, we thank you for this church. We recommit this church to you for your glory in your glory alone, I pray it in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, LifePoint Church. Our family already loves you, and we're so grateful to be here with you today.